A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, I'm fangirling, is the <laughs> author with Dan Siegel of two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, as well as The Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up. She is the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice in Southern California. And maybe the most important part of her bio is that she's the mom to three teenage and young adult boys and men. You can learn more about, I'm going to call you Tina instead of Dr. Bryson, in lots of links in our show notes. And I follow her on Instagram and I absolutely love it. Tina, we are so grateful and excited to have you here today. I am so excited to be here. I've been big fans of both of you for so long, and we've never met in person until now. So Isn't this is crazy? super exciting. It's yeah, crazy. Hi, Tina. Hi. Tina, we could talk to you about 150 different things. And have a blast. And have it. a blast. <laughs> we want to focus this conversation on the concept of showing up which you did in our studio, and I'm very excited <laughs> about that. This is brand new for all of us so post-lockdown. Post so, you know, I don't want to read your words back to you, but I'm going to read your words okay. back to you because they're Go beautiful and so, so perfectly written. One of the things you say is, your reliable presence in the lives of your children can significantly impact the physical architecture and connectivity in their brains, creating mental models and expectations about the way the world works. And then you go on. When parents consistently show up, 
their children's minds come to expect that the world is a place that can be understood and meaningfully interacted with, even in times of trouble and pain. So that's where we're going to start the conversation. Can you introduce the concept of showing up? Yeah. I love the science and the whole body of work around the power of showing up because it's incredibly liberating and it's incredibly hopeful, right? And we all need both of those tremendously. Okay, here's the punchline of the science, and that is that over 50 years of cross-cultural research tells us that one of the best predictors for how well our kids turn out, no matter what they go through, and no matter what we measure them on, and we measure them on lots and lots of things, but how they turn out, it's all related to whether or not at least one person showed up for them. And this is actually called secure attachment. And I want to be really clear that I'm not talking about attachment parenting. That's totally different. It's not at all related to the science that I'm talking about. Secure attachment is really fundamentally a mammal instinct. So one of the ways I like to think about this is to connect it to nature. And so, for example, I have a gorgeous, messy retriever. And so I had to take her to the vet. And when we walked in and she realized what was happening, she began to tremble and cry. So I knew she was feeling afraid and uncomfortable, and her physiology was reflecting that as well. And doesn't it just about break your oh, heart? You're I'm like, like oh, yes. sorry. Oh, maybe even more so than I do with my kids. Yeah. I don't know. It's really, <laughs> I feel for her. At least with my kids, I can name it to tame it, and I right. can use my all words and all that. Yes. But this is fundamentally what secure attachment is, is she tries to get as close to me as she can, and she's probably 100 pounds, and she would get on my lap if I would let her. And So I bend down and I talk to her and I pet her. And as I do that, her fear emotions become more regulated and her physiology becomes more regulated. So her heart's not beating as fast. Her muscles aren't as tight. So basically what I'm doing in that moment is in her moment of distress, I'm regulating her emotional and physiological states and giving her an experience by me showing up in that moment to let her know she is connected and protected that I've got her, that if she has a need, I'm going to see it and respond to her. And this is exactly what we want to do with our kids. And honestly, we're going to be talking about the parent-child dyad, but this is what our partners need from us. This is what we need from our, we still need as adults from our own parents. Mm-hmm. This is what we need from our friends. So, so really, that's what showing up is about, is about in moments of distress, particularly, that we are present and we regulate these physiological and emotional states. And we could talk about what that looks like. And I have two side comments about it that I would love your thoughts on. So one is that it doesn't have to be a parent, right? It can be a trusted adult. And in fact, in many cases, it is just another trusted adult. I'd love for you to touch on that. The other is what you've described is showing up both physically and emotionally. Mm -hmm. So just showing up to check the box, but being on your phone or being disengaged, it would not calm the golden retriever, right? If there was a phone involved in that interaction. No. It's also what I appreciate about that example, Tina, is that in that instance, you can't really use words Mm -mm. at all, Right. right? And so the parental instinct or the instinct of a trusted adult to a child in distress is to explain it away or to dismiss it, to use words to often invalidate what this kid is feeling. And in the, in the gold, what's your dog's name? Bluebell. 
Oh, in blue. But mean, we call her blue. You can call okay. her blue. Okay. In the yeah. example of blue, that's not an option, right? Mm-hmm. You can't explain it away. No. And so you immediately go to actually tactical ways of calming yeah. her, which is a really good paradigm for us to think about with our kids. It really is about what presence we bring to the moment, right? And I think, you know, I'm so glad you said that about dismissing and avoiding. And of course, that's one pattern of insecure attachment is when we avoid and we dismiss that kind of emotional connection. But what's interesting about this, we have to remember that the brain is an association machine. And typically when our kids are in distress, like if your kid is physically hurt, it's a lot easier to tap into that kind of showing up with nurturing and presence. When they're emotionally in distress, that sometimes looks like disrespect coming at us. Sometimes it looks like bad behavior. Sometimes it looks like a crazy wild tantrum or shutting down and not talking to us and we're trying to engage. And in those moments, it's much harder. But what happens is when our child is in distress, they're feeling fear, they're feeling angry, they're feeling left out, whatever's going on, we often use the words and we minimize and criticize. So give us an example yeah, of that. Yeah, I've got lots of those because I have these three boys. So let me tell a, a bedtime battle story because we all have these, right? So this oh, is, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> this is bedtime like, is just smooth sailing in everyone's home. So I remember my little guy was about 10 at the time, and he has two older brothers who at this point would have been 13 and 16. So they're teenagers. They have friends over. It's a Friday night. And one thing I... I wouldn't say I'm militant about really much of anything in parenting. I feel like anytime you become really rigid and militant about something that doesn't change as your kids develop, that's usually not a good thing. But I feel consistently militant about sleep for my kids. Hallelujah. Yeah. I, I mean, call myself an avid sleep trainer and, commi- <laughs> and I'm very committed yes. to bedtime. Yes. Um, for us too. Which like... Some might say I'm militant, yeah. but that's not how I define yeah. it. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. You know, Christine Carter wrote this beautiful book called The New Adolescence that I just love. And she makes the argument that sleep deprivation, along with many other people who make this argument, is it like you, Cara, you've made this argument as well, is that when kids are chronically sleep deprived, we just do see a lot more mental health yeah. challenges. Yeah. So it's when a, we are chronically oh, sleep deprived. Right. When any sure. of us, there's a great yeah. book coming out in June by Lisa Lewis called The Sleep Deprived Teen. And we have her coming on, and it's so great because oh, it I can't wait breaks to see it. down. She's a journalist and she interviews all the sleep experts, and she advocated for moving California's school start times yeah. later. So that was like she was involved in the public policy. And it's really clear about the cause and effect yeah. around kids, teens, and, yeah. and sleep. Okay, so your little okay, guy's so my little guy, pissed off. He's pissed, and, and it's bedtime. And so he says, can I stay up there? Friends over, it's so much fun, you know. And so I say, okay, 15 more minutes, which all that meant was he was 15 minutes more tired for the battle for the that was going to happen. Right, and I know this. It's my third kid, like I know, and I still do it. Okay, so it's 15 minutes later. It's time to go upstairs, and I've grabbed the books. It's time to read and snuggle and do our bedtime routine. And he's so angry that he is flopping like a fish out of water on the bed, right? So there's no snuggling that's going to happen immediately. So in that moment, my first instinct is to say, look, if you're going to act that way, we're not doing bedtime routine. You, I'm not going to read to you. And you just need to calm down. Now, that's a lose-lose situation. And that's a time for another podcast talking about behavior and discipline and all that. But- like, like the time I took away reading. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or how about, let's do a whole episode on what happens when someone tells someone else to calm down. Oh, uh, I yeah. mean. Every time I've been on an airplane ever, I've seen a parent <laughs> do that. 
That's the title of the story of my life. Don't tell me to calm down. Well, it doesn't work. It's really dumb. I mean, if you're like, calm down. And usually you say it in an aggressive way too, right? Totally. And then they're like, oh, that's so helpful. I hadn't thought about that. I'm just going to go ahead and do that. Like, Oh, yeah. Let me, let me just go ahead and calm down. And like literally one time, and I usually try not to interfere with other parents unless something very dangerous is going on. But one time I literally put my hand on a dad who just kept yelling at his daughter to calm down. I was like, she doesn't know how to right now. I think she needs you to help her do that. You're like, I'm an expert. I know. <laughs> I'm Bop here them for on the you. head with the book. Um, <laughs> so I want to say, look, you know, if you're going to act like this, I'm out. That's a lose-lose situation. It doesn't teach him anything about how to regulate himself better the next time. And it's going to just make him more upset, which means it's going to take longer to go to sleep. So it's a lose-lose situation. So I don't do that. But then my next instinct is to minimize and criticize mm-hmm. and be like, why are you acting this way? I gave you 15 more minutes and this is what you're going to do after I gave that to you. And you know, it's bedtime. And when you get old and to start lecturing words and stuff, here's the problem. The brain is an association machine. And when we minimize and criticize, our children come away from that moment to say, that didn't feel very good. And maybe I'm not going to share how I feel with my parent the next time. So instead, we want to empathize and we want to. So here's the liberation thing. Okay, so what does this look like in the moment? I used to spend so much time cognitively, emotionally, and attentionally figuring out what do I do? How do I fix this? How do I stop this? And now, you know, from the science and the power of showing up, what I know to do is I don't have to do any of those things. This is so freeing. All I have to do is show up and be present. So for me, what that might look like in that moment, and every kid is different, every parent is different, every moment is different. So this is just one example of one moment was to really help him feel, first of all, safe. So we're going to talk about the four S's in a moment, I'm sure, safe, where I don't join him with the storm, but I stay the calm in the storm, right? So I try to keep myself regulated and hold my boundaries because boundaries help kids feel safe because they're predictable. I want him to feel seen. And then I want to soothe him and then help him then know that I'm going to keep doing that. So that's really kind of the safe, seen, soothed, and secure. One thing that your book taught me was that it doesn't even need to be in a moment of drama or conflict, Mm -hmm. that as a parent or an adult influence, you can just find your way into that kid's space. Yeah. And just, you know, what I'll sometimes do is I'll walk, I'll knock, always knock. Always knock. Always Always. knock. And then go into my son's room and I'll just perch myself on his bed, lay down on his bed or sit on and. It's exactly what you've described. Even when there's no drama, it's sort of a moment of I'm checking in. Yeah. So now that machine that you've described has associated the presence of mom mm-hmm. in my room, not always with drama and anger. Yeah. Right? Tina, I want And it's that availability. It's correct. like I'm available. So especially when our teenagers, like we try to connect with them and they don't want to. Correct. We're like, I'll be downstairs right. if you need. And you like, around. Yes. And you don't have to say anything. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere, so we made one. 
It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra, and it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft, and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info, at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash puberty 
and you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at bioptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. I want to go to another example, and I want you to walk us through this example with some scripts and some kind of body language examples, because we get this question all the time on the Puberty Podcast. My 13-year-old daughter is so volatile, and she comes home from school, and she just explodes. And she's telling me a story about how this friendship and so on fair and this person Mm -hmm. did this thing. And, you know, we as the adults are sitting there thinking, oh God, like it's not a big deal Mm -hmm. or this will blow over or kiddo, like in five years, this won't ever matter. But like none of those are the right things to say. So they're not helpful. They're not helpful. They're not supportive. They're not any Mm -hmm. of those things. Walk us through a kid comes through the door like a hurricane, (laughs) right? And is just upset and angry and completely dysregulated. Mm -hmm. What do we do? What do we say? What don't we say in that situation? So the first thing is to make sure we are regulated because every mistake I've ever made as a parent has always been because I was reacting to my own internal chaos and reactivity instead of what was actually happening with my child. So a couple things that helped me is to put a hand on my chest and a hand on my stomach and take a deep breath that where my exhale is longer than my inhale. I know that sounds really woo-woo, but there's actually a lot of science behind. We do this all the time when we're like, <sighs> and when we sigh, it actually turns down our nervous system arousal. So I put my hand on my chest, my belly, I take that deep breath. And then I say to myself, he needs you right now, right? This is when he, mm-hmm. at their worst, that's when they need us the most, right? And Kim John Payne has this beautiful phrase where he basically says, like, you notice your own reactivity and you want to start lecturing or doing all these things to literally tell yourself, not right now, I'm with my child. Mm. I love that phrase. So I use like it. a mantra. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I ground myself first. And then the first thing I'm going to do is connect. If your kid is coming in hot and your kid responds really well to touch, You might, without words, throw your arms open and wrap your arms around them and take a deep breath. Some kids don't respond well to Mm -hmm. touch. It's actually dysregulating. So 
I'll walk you through exactly what I might say that would be really similar to the bedtime story, which is to say, so she's like, it's so unfair and blah, and she's coming in hot with all these words is to say, oh, sweetie, that feels so awful when something feels unfair. I know that feeling and oh, it's just awful. And then this is the simple part. We can just say some version of I'm right here with you while you're feeling Mm -hmm. it. Instead of jumping to fixing. So the idea is that solving is not the same thing as soothing, right? And so what we're trying to do, remember, is regulate her emotional states and her physiological states. And instead of figuring out what do I do, what do I say, it really is just about joining with so that they feel felt and just say, that's such an awful feeling. I'm right here. Or I will listen. Or, you know, and eventually I might say, like, what's your plan? Like, I might use the phrase, how can I help? Or what do you need? Especially our girls. I think we really need to give them experiences of tuning in and asking themselves, what do I need right now? I love that. So I think I would just join with the emotion or you say, oh, you seem like you're really overwhelmed. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So we have to come with the humility too. Right. at what point when kids are being maximally disrespectful, when Mm -hmm. it's not working and it's Mm -hmm. not clicking, at what point is it effective or is it never effective to say, the way you're speaking doesn't feel good to me. Mm-hmm. What you're so good about explaining is how to be present for your kid and how to reflect to your kid. At what point can you say, this isn't okay for me? Yeah. Well, let's shift the paradigm a little bit so people know. So it's not a kid coming in and saying, oh God, this friend at school no, was so awful. You're it's, the worst. You're <laughs> terrible. <laughs> right. You forgot to you know, sign me up. And it was so embarrassing because I showed up for this class and you didn't sign me up. And like, you suck as a mom. Or it's the kid who's coming in hot because of school says this kid is, has done something terrible to me. And P.S., you're the worst because you did this. You know, they're clearing their decks to try to (laughs) do, right? And so. Right. It's like a scorched earth And so there's this, we've all been there where there are these moments where you do want to tell a kid, a certain behavior. What is Aliza Pressman's Aliza says, amazing line? All feelings are welcome. All, all behaviors, behaviors are not. not. Yeah. <laughs> My version of that that Dan and I wrote about, or maybe it was Dan's version. You know, when you write with someone, you sort of forget who <laughs> said what, is we always want to say yes to the emotions, even while we say no to a behavior. There right? you go. Yeah, That's great. Another version of that. So what does that sound like, Tina, with yeah, the kid you know, who's dumping on you? Another kind of variation on that is... They come in and it's not about you, but you tr- you're trying really hard to connect with them. And then they oh berate you for the way yes. you're con- trying to connect with them, right? What like are one you of my talking kids about? Is like, you don't know what you're saying. Oh, I, here's the direct quote from my son, Luke. Stop trying to use your stupid parenting crap <gasps> on me, right? And of course, my parenting crap is connection. So I'm like, no, sweetie, I'm just trying to connect with you. I really want to understand, which is my parenting crap, but it totally worked. So, okay, so here's what, here's what I would say. I would say there's no one answer. There are two main ways I would think about that. One is to know... My kid typically doesn't talk to me this way. My kid is talking to me this way because they are in a dysregulated state. And so first, I'm going to connect. I'm going to help them feel safe and seen and soothed and secure. No, I'm going to keep showing up for them. And then once they're regulated, the brain's either reactive or receptive. Once they move back into receptive, then I'm going to address the behavior. So the way that would look is to say, oh, sweetie, you seem really, or oh, buddy, or maybe you don't even use anything sweet like that. You can just say, oh you seem really angry. I will listen. So you just come in with connection and empathy, either literal arms open or metaphorical arms open there. 
Or I think this is just as appropriate is to say, I can see you're having such a hard time right now, but I don't let anybody talk to me that way. And so I'm happy to keep engaging with you and listening and talking if you can change how you're talking to me. And if you can't, that's totally okay. We'll just take a break and I'll come back and check with you in 10 minutes. I appreciate because you're setting, you're showing yeah, your kids how to set boundaries for exactly themselves. Right. That's exactly yeah, right. That's I great. appreciate that because you're modeling for mm-hmm. them how they can stand up for mm-hmm. themselves exactly. in moments when someone is disrespectful mm-hmm. to them. I mean, they're completely never going to see that in the moment. Like they're not going right. to be like, "Oh, mom, thank you for modeling for me what it means <laughs> no. to set safe boundaries." No. But if you do it enough and you don't say, "Hey, jerk," <laughs> right? Get out of here. Right? You know what we oh, should talk about, though, is. is when we don't respond well. Yes. Okay, so... I so no let's, idea what you're talking about, <laughs> That's Tina. like 90% of the puberty <laughs> podcast is what happens when well, we mess it up. Yes. And that's what I also love about the attachment science is that there's a ton of leeway and grace, and it's so hopeful because, first of all, history is not destiny. And oh, okay, that, I'm so glad you brought this up. Yes, talk about this. This is critical. So I mean this in two ways. I mean this in the way you were parenting does not determine how you have to be the parent, right? So you're previous attachment patterns and how your brain was wired for how to expect that first quote you read, you know, what we expect and what meaning we create about relationships in the world. The research is really clear that the single best predictor for how well we are able to show up for our kids is not whether or not we had someone do it for us, but whether or not we've reflected on those experiences, made sense of them. We're kind of doing our own work and making sense of our story. Okay, so that's great. So that's what I mean by history is not destiny in that way. But I also mean like how you parented earlier today how you parented yesterday or this month or during the pandemic, we can always make a change because the way our brains wire around attachment and around relationships are based on experiences. It's not some magical genetic Hmm. thing that we don't have input over. So that when we start providing more safe, seen, soothed, and secure attachment experiences, our kids' brains start to change. So the other thing around this is that when we mess up, and we do it all the time. Yeah. The research is so liberating because it says that when we mess up, as long as we repair with them, it can actually be beneficial. Mm-hmm. It's even have those better. Ruptures. Yeah. 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 And so let's break this down and then I'll tell you how I make repair because I have lots of examples of that. The first thing is the brain hates unpredictability. Unpredictability is potential threat. Okay. So I don't know about y'all, but my experience around this is like, I'm patient, I'm patient, I'm patient, I'm patient until I'm not. And then I lose it. I have permission to tell this story because my kids think it makes me look stupid. Um, (laughs) But I was playing Yahtzee with them and they were fighting. And to me, that was the most unpleasant part of parenting when my children were growing up was the sibling conflict, which honestly, we stopped having once the oldest hit about 15 or 16. Mm -hmm. Like it just development unfolded and the oldest one was kind of the one that was you know, setting the tunnel. So once his brain developed enough and he had the skills, it changed. So things escalated, escalated, and I lost my mind and I screamed at them and I threw the dice across the (gasps) room like a crazy person. I love that. We now refer to this as the Yahtzee incident (laughs) in my house. But what was amazing is that in that moment, okay, so I lost it. I was predictable, predictable. Then I totally became unpredictable. And that's like a big rupture of the sense of safety because if your parent is out of control, and that's actually the number one thing about attachment is that it's the main purpose of it is to help us have a better chance of surviving in the world, right? So protect us. So if I become unpredictable and I'm out of control, I can't control and make sure that they're safe because Mm -hmm. I'm not in control even of myself. So when I violate that sense of safety, it's this feeling of my kids of like, 
wow, this feels really bad. And she's kind of scary right now. And I don't know what's happening. And relationships are messy. And this is conflict. But they know based on all these repeated experiences that I'm going to come and make it right, that I'm Mm -hmm. going to come and repair. So when they sit for a moment in that messiness, just like when they sit in a moment of feeling this is really unfair and we say, it sucks to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And I'm right here with you. We're communicating to them. I trust that you can handle big feelings and I can handle your big feelings. So it's actually Mm -hmm. resilience building. So this builds relational resilience when we repair. And I think a key mistake I have made in repair is that I really want to teach my boys, you're responsible for your own behavior, no matter what anybody else does. So if I make a repair where I say, if you guys had stopped fighting and you had listened Mm, when I told you to, that wouldn't have happened. I'm not taking responsibility for my behavior. So I have to model this by saying, oh, guys, wow, I just kind of lost it there, didn't I? I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? I got really mad and I should have calmed myself down before I did anything or said anything. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And then I ask for a do-over. I still do, even though they're oh, like, okay, so our favorite strategy all time. But the question is, where in that narrative is there space to reflect for them where their behavior could have been different in the dynamic? You know, like where's that balance between us absorbing the responsibility for our poor response? Right. I have a zillion examples versus or in the improv sense of it and them learning that their fighting escalated you to that point. So the first thing I would say is we need to trust that they are way more sophisticated than we think they are. We don't have to tell them that for them to not have made that connection. I mean, so true. They know, you know, even a two-year-old, if they break something and you gasp, their brain makes the association between that caused a big, re- like they know that. So they already know. This. So you, you don't have to narrate it, but you absolutely can. And I, I think for me, my whole thing from the No Drama Discipline book is that behavior is communication. And all the things our kids do that piss us off, that drive us crazy, that make us afraid are really the list of the skills they don't yet have. Mm. So for me, like behavior is communication around. So in my mind, I think, okay, they still need skill building around how to negotiate differences of and how to be kind to each other or how to, you know, be more generous of spirit. Mm-hmm. Like those are all things I need to work on. Like instead of doing something to them, like you're being mean to your brother, go to your room. That doesn't do anything to teach him a skill that he can use to do it better the next time then I think, what do I need to do for my child to start building those skills? Yeah, I mean, it's information about what abilities they do not yet have, right? They're incapable. I do want to ask, where is the place for anger, right? Where is Parental or child? Well, Well, I was going to say the same thing because I, I actually think in your example, Tina, it's a perfect example. Your reaction, while not ideal, does show rather than tell your kids, that that behavior is not, not okay. okay. Yeah. So to this exact question. And I mean parental anger. Because yeah. kids' anger, there's a place for it in every corner of every room of every home. But for parents, like, where is it okay to get angry? Is it okay to express anger? Like, we are only human. We are going to lose mm-hmm. it. We are going to do stuff. But it can be yeah. frightening, unsettling. It can feel unsafe to our yeah. kids. So, like, where is that? Where's room for that? I love this question. And first of all, I'm going to take us on a tiny little diversion in that to say this is, again, back to the part about making sense of our own stories. Because so much of what we do is 
based on kind of how we're wired, right? And I grew up in a family where anger was not a safe emotion. So I'm not so good at expressing anger. And it's actually something that I work on is actually tuning in and not minimizing and be like, well, I'm just a little frustrated, like tuning and be like, no, I'm angry. And it's okay for me to express that. So I think that's really important is an example of whenever we parent in ways that we don't feel good about, this is an invitation for us to say, what was that about for me? What got in the way of me being the parent I wanted to be? Okay. So that's kind of our own stuff that we bring to the moment. Ideally, what we want to teach our kids is that anger is an amazing, important emotion you have because it tells you something is not working for you or that you might need something to change. Okay, so that's a really good thing. And so clearly I needed something to change in that moment. I needed them to shut their little pie holes um, <laughs> and get along or, or leave never me alone. Play yeah, yeah exactly. Which, you know, I mean, I, I mean, some of those board games made me want to just die. Like oh shoots and ladders. God. I mean, I would rather get a colonoscopy. Like I mean, it's the worst. Some of them it's like, oh, God, do we have to play sorry I again? I can't I handle another round of it. I know. It. Thank God grandparents, if they're around, they love playing those board games for hours. Well, anyway. My parents would come home and be like, your kids were cheating. <laughs> I was like, mm, I wonder when they learned that from. Yeah, you're like, okay, skills to be built. So really, ideally, it would be great if in that moment I could say, I feel really angry right now. And it's, it's different if I name, what, like if I say, you guys are making me angry. If you don't stop this, blah, blah, blah. It's very different. I can I can absolutely say, and I think this is healthy to say, you are still fighting. I feel angry. Mm-hmm. And then to say, because I'm angry, I'm going to go calm down before I say another word to you people mm. and exit. And then I'm expressing a healthy emotion and I'm also modeling Coping. to pause and to take a break. So I think, I mean, that's ideal. So now I want to layer on the puberty podcast <laughs> layer to this. Which is how hormones come in to the Parental conversation. Parental or child. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> so because some of the feelings, those elevated feelings, are identifiable to kids as anger or mm-hmm. frustration. And, you know, we could name a whole bunch of other words. But then some of them are actually not that recognizable because they are vaguely familiar, but they're being triggered by hormonal surges, either rapid rises or rapid falls in hormones and independent of gender. So estrogen causes one set of mood swings and testosterone causes a whole other set. And so can you give us advice for parents who know their kids are managing hormonal swings? Mm -hmm. How does one layer that into the conversation? (laughs) Honestly, it doesn't feel that different to me than when my three-year-old had a tantrum because he couldn't climb up the wall like Mm Spider-Man, right? So that's not something I have any control over. And it's about their experience in the moment. Like your child is raging because of some hormonal situation and you think it's freaking ridiculous what they're upset about. It doesn't matter what we think about how ridiculous it is. Our job in that moment, and again, this is why I love the power of showing up because it's a North Star for me. There are moments like that where I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say, but I don't have to even figure that out. If I can show up in that moment, help them feel safe, help them feel seen, help them feel soothed, like I'm here to help, not solve all the problems, right? and I'm going to keep showing up for you. If I can do that, I've done the best thing I can do that helps regulate them and really be present in the moment. And when they get practice going from these dysregulated states, 
back into regulated states with our presence, this is the most exciting thing because they learn how to do that for themselves. So just like when I lift weights and I do reps, my muscle gets stronger. Every time they have practice going from these insane states back into sane states with our presence, it's a rep for their nervous system for how to do that for themselves. Tina, can you explain to our listeners, because they love the science of it, can mm-hmm. you explain what that like actually looks like, what's happening yeah. in the brain yeah. when they're building those, those little neurological muscles? Yeah, I mean, let's start with the nervous system. So we have to remember that the brain is embodied, right? And so th- when we talk about the brain, we're not just talking about this organ in our head. We're talking about our whole nervous system, right? And I literally think about myself as having a dial and my children having a dial, like a volume dial. And it's really our nervous system arousal. So if your kid comes in like totally shut down, that's like their volume dial is turned down too low. And I'm going to think, okay, how can I turn up their volume dial a little bit? And so I might put music on or I might say, hey, will you help me, you know, brush the dog or get them moving their bodies or, you know, or I might get them something bubbly to drink or whatever to kind of wake up their, their nervous system a little bit. They come in hot. I'm thinking, how can I use, like, go back to the Bluebell Retriever situation, like my tone of voice and the way I'm, and my pacing and all the nonverbal stuff to kind of pet their nervous system a little bit. So here's what happens is the brain makes these connections. There's a ton that happens in the brain that's outside of our control. But a huge percentage of how the brain gets wired is based on repeated experiences. So if your kid has repeated experiences of you minimizing, criticizing, and saying, like, if you're going to act that way, I don't want to be with you right now. If they have that as their main repeated experience, their brain is going to wire to say, okay, all of these experiences, we've now created these associations. So we now know that when we are upset, we are on our own to do that. Mm. And that's actually called dismissing attachment. Or our kids know based on these, again, not perfect but enough repeated experiences, the main thing that they get is to say, if you have a need, I'm there. And so those connections really get um, laid out in the brain in lots of different ways. So it, it happens in our memory system that's both explicit and implicit. Implicit is more like body memory, procedural memory that we don't necessarily have conscious awareness of, but it's like what we expect. Like, have you ever gone on an escalator that's not working mm-hmm. and you know it's not working and your eyes see that it's not moving, but you still are weird about how you put your foot down? It's because I you're- I thought you were going to say you just stand. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know how you're like, you're kind of like, you don't know how to make the rhythm happen yes. as you're yes. getting onto it and your first foot yes. thing is kind of weird and then you stomp. It's because your brain is anticipating based on all these previous experiences mm. about how to move your body in what, oh, with that so elevator kind of thing. So yeah. that's what happens relationally. So how we show up, whether we do, whether we don't, whether we blame them, whether we're like, I'm here, all of those things are created maps for how to expect things to unfold in the world. So as you're saying all of this, I am sitting here flashing back <laughs> to ways in which I've gone wrong because yeah. that's what we all do, right? The the things we do well gets packed away into long-term memory and it's there and it's accessible, but it's hard to find. Whereas, you know, our screw-ups are easily accessible. So I'm going through this recent litany of Mm -hmm. all the ways in which I've really messed up. And now I'm hearing it's mapped. It's mapped. So now walk us through the plasticity of the brain and our ability to take that do-over at the neurologic level and help rewire our kids' brains when we do better? Okay, the first thing is, 
I'm so glad you have regret and you feel crappy about your parenting. And I'm, I'm not kidding about that. If you never feel like crap about your parenting, if you never feel regret, it means you're not reflecting and you're not growing. So like if I read my middle school diary and I was like, this is so insightful. Like what would that say about my <laughs> development, right? I, I just read back. my middle school oh, diary it's and I was like, oh my God. Mine it's was, all I'm about so, Kevin Bacon. I'm so, oh my God. <laughs> no, really? The only oh movie I've ever seen in theater seven times was Footloose. <gasps> <gasps> yeah. Um, we are of the same generation. I knew I liked you, um, Gina. So yes. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just trying to process all this. Can we spend the last five minutes of the episode with me processing both of you being in love with Kevin Bacon? I know, okay, I know. Okay, so I'm ready to move on. So if you look at your middle school diary, you're mortified. And that's because you've developed and you've grown and you've become. So as parents, if we don't have those things, it means we're not growing and reflecting. So we should have that feeling. Now, keep in mind, the brain is incredibly plastic, meaning it changes from experience and especially during the adolescent years. So after the first three years, which is the most dramatic period of plasticity. First three years of life. Of life. The first three years of life. The second biggest period of plasticity, I'm sure you guys talk about this all the time, is adolescence. So here's the deal. Again, the research is super clear. We can mess up all the time. In fact, Edtronic's work talks about how the most attuned parents who were really connected and attuning are probably only getting it right about 30% of the time. The rest of the time, they're misattuning, but then they're correcting, right? Mm -hmm. So they're sort of correcting. So that just gives a lot of leeway. So every experience we have, even if they're really bad, crappy experiences, my kid's brain is, yes, is taking in that experience, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing because they also then are mapping, my parent is not perfect, so I don't have to be. Mm -hmm. And after we had that really bad thing where my mom was kind of a jerk, we also then reconnected. And when we talked about it, she understood me in a deeper way. And all of that gets And we laughed too. about and it. And we laughed about the Yahtzee incident, oh right? So what I'm saying to you is moments that are crappy, getting mapped is not a bad thing. I mean, if, obviously, if we're talking about abuse or something else, that's different, totally a right. different thing. I, so. um, my 16-year-old likes to mock me of by <laughs> doing things like when I walk in his room and I scan what a dump mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. And then he starts to walk around the room and imitate me and be like, this place is disgusting. You're not going out this weekend. Until and he can anticipate. Mm -hmm. He can say all the things that I would have said. And he can also take my rising anger. Now, it's not our kid's job to take care of us, but he's acknowledging it's and addressing it without me having to mm -hmm. say it. So then I'm like, okay, well, I don't need to make fun of how disgusting this yeah. is. Step like one is taking care of. Is taking care of. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask a question before we finish. And it's about actually that parallel between the kind of first three years of life and the adolescent and the ability to identify and name emotions or not identify and name emotions. And it connects back to Carr's point about the emotional roller coaster of adolescence. And often kids say to us, I don't know what I'm feeling. Right. All I know is that I feel out of control, mm -hmm. but I can't name, is it anger? Is it hurt? Is it sadness? What is our role in that? Mm -hmm. Just as with our, ki our kids were little and they were throwing a tantrum because they couldn't find the language, mm -hmm. so too do our adolescents do that. What's our job there? Well, and just to add, because we what we know is our job is, is not to tell them how they feel. Right. So that piece... Right. We've messed that one up plenty yes. of times. So I don't know what you're maybe, talking about. <laughs> <laughs> maybe through through that lens of right. knowing that. So our words matter a lot. Yeah. So if we can use the word seem, you seem overwhelmed. You seem really discouraged. 
is that right? Then we're inviting them to kind of check in and ask that. Sometimes when we have, I'm very much this way too, even though I study this stuff, sometimes it's hard to find the words because it's a lot of things. We can feel lots of simultaneous emotions at once. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's helpful to give them kind of a drop-down menu. Mm. Like, is it more like fear or is it more like frustration? Or is it, you know, what, what is that? So you're kind of giving them options. Like, is it angry or just frustrated? You mm-hmm. know, that kind of thing. You know, we want to help them. And there's a lot of science around, like, if we help them name what they're feeling yeah. accurately, that actually does help regulate their brain and give them a better emotional vocabulary and all of that. That's great. And I would say it's not always important that we have to actually name it. Again, the idea is being with. I remember one time after I gave a talk, I had a woman come up and talk to me afterwards. And she said, I'm a chaplain. And I go into hospital rooms when people are in their last hours and days. And she said, you've been talking about presence and all of this stuff. And she said, the most important thing I do when I walk in the room is that I sit down. Hmm. And I said, why is that important? She said, just sitting down lets them know you're important to me, I have time for you, and you matter. And that actually had a huge impact on me, just that one thing. Because again, it's liberating. Like, I don't have to figure out necessarily what to say or what to do if I sit down and I close my laptop and I turn my body toward my kid and I just go, oh, sweetie, it seems like it's hard right now. Like just that, like you don't have to come up with all of these things. And the other thing I would say is that we really want to teach our kids, no matter what age they are, that their feelings, and we live in a society where feelings are considered pathology. Like if you feel anxious, it means you have an anxiety disorder, maybe, but probably not necessarily. Like If you feel anxious and there's a threat nearby or something new is happening, that's an appropriate, healthy human emotion. And we also live in a society on the, so we pathologize on the one hand or the the pendulum swings and we minimize it and we tell people, you know, oh, you don't have anything to worry about. Why are you worried about that? Right? Which again, doesn't help. They're not like, oh, that's helpful. I'm not going to worry anymore. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for pointing that out. (laughs) Yeah, it's not helpful. But what's important is that we teach our kids that what they feel in their bodies And what emotions they feel, which is often somatic and in their bodies, is important information. It doesn't mean it's true. It may not be true, right? It may not be that it's time to panic. That might not be true. But when they feel a feeling of panic or fear, so we want them to tune into it. So here's Mm. how I did that with my son recently is he's like, oh, it was the same thing. He's like, I don't even know. Like, I don't know if I'm like, mad or anxious, like, I don't even know. I'm just like, uh, uh, was the best way he could Mm -hmm. communicate it. And I said, you know what? Your feelings are really important information. Why don't you just go sit somewhere quiet, take a couple of minutes and just tune in and ask yourself, like, what is it I need right now? Just ask yourself that question. And he went away and a couple of minutes later he came back and he was like, well, I don't know. I still don't know, but I feel a lot better. And I was like, great. Good. Because I think it is, it's again, back to that kind of repeated experience of saying, I'm not going to run from my feelings, but I'm not going to become completely preoccupied and flooded by them. Like, I'm going to look at them. I'm going to check in with myself. I'm going to see what I need. I maybe want to talk about it. I maybe don't. Sometimes the answer is, I need a quesadilla. I was going to say chocolate. I was going to say chocolate. (laughs) Both. And I can't remember whose book this is in, but the the recognition that the first feeling you have is not the only feeling you're going to have. Yeah. And I love that. Particularly for adolescents, because every minute in adolescence feels like a year. Like things seem to last forever. So Tina, we like to end our episodes with a practical puberty takeaway. Okay. We're going to let you go last because we'll give you a minute to think about yours. Cara, do you want to go first? Sure. Because she always accuses me that I take hers (laughs) if I go first. (laughs) 
because she always takes my hand. Well, y'all um, are so like-minded. You have the same. Are. Yeah. We have like a... And y'all are even coordinated with your we, outfits. We do yeah. look very matchy-matchy yeah. today. The overwhelming thought I had throughout this conversation was that there is some sort of real overlap between the concept of forgiveness and this explanation of brain rewiring. Mm-hmm. And I think my takeaway is that for parents who feel that they've messed it up or who focus on messing mm-hmm. up, forgiving yourself is really important, but recognizing that when your kid's brain rewires, when you do it differently the yep. next time, that is neurologic forgiveness. Yes. And, and growth. And yeah. growth. Mm-hmm. And when viewed that way, it feels better. Yeah. It feels better. We can be liberated from that shame spiral yeah. and that guilt because as we do better, our children's brains change. That's right. Yeah. And so do ours. And so do ours. It does. It gets easier for us the longer we practice how to do this. That's too. right. Yeah. So that's my takeaway. My takeaway is that sometimes showing up doesn't make a sound. That it's sometimes yeah. just sitting, putting away a phone or a laptop giving a hug or not giving a hug. But sometimes it's just literally being there. Available. Being available, not distracted, Mm -hmm. focused without actually uttering a word. It's such a comforting, I can almost have the sensation of it. And that the symbolism of sitting down says to them, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not in a hurry. Like I'm here for you. And I really appreciate that imagery in my mind of just showing up by yeah. sitting down. Although we and, don't want to sneak up on them and show up. <laughs> <laughs> I have this image of Vanessa sneaking in. No. <laughs> I just, my 11-year-old loves to scare the crap out of me. He fun. loves sneaking mm-hmm. into places mm-hmm. and it's so annoying, but yeah. it brings him such joy yeah, that you can't shut it no, down. I'm like, no. okay, I'm going to scream again because yeah. you scare the crap out of me. <laughs> I think just in response to what you were saying, I think the subtitle of The Power of Showing Up is something about how parental presence shapes who our kids become and how their brains get wired. That's exactly what you're talking about. And sometimes it means, and remember, just like when your kids were like toddlers and you gave them a snack and a little drink, like sensory inputs are also great ways to comfort without words. So hand a slide a quesadilla across the counter, right? That can be really helpful. Okay, here's my takeaway. The best outcomes for our kids come from us showing up. And the way that we do that is with the four S's we write about in the book, helping them feel safe, helping them feel seen, helping them feel soothed. What happens then is they develop that fourth S of security, which means that their brains come to be wired to know because we are meaning makers Mm -hmm. for them to know that if they have a need, we will show up. And then something else important happens. And that is that they learn how to show up for themselves. Mm -hmm. They learn how to keep themselves safe. They learn how to see and understand themselves, especially as we say, is it this feeling? They come to understand and see themselves because we are looking at the mind behind the behavior. That's the key for seeing. They learn how to soothe themselves because their brain's getting practice doing that. And then they learn how to show up for other people. So they become better partners and parents and friends. And then the last thing I'll say in terms of the takeaway here is what your kids need most from you is you. Flawed you, imperfect you, Mm -hmm. falling apart, sometimes the storm instead of the eye of the storm, you, but you showing up as best you can, just your presence. That's what our kids need most from us because we are better parents than we think we are. We are still our children's heroes, even though their behavior would be complete opposite evidence of that. 
we are still the ones, even in our flawed, broken places. Love Tina. that. <laughs> Tina, oh can you just gosh. stay with us forever? Yes. Well, I know, now we're going to the puberty podcast. <laughs> I have tears come so easily to me these days. Mm-hmm. Is that another episode? Can we get drill um, down into that? If it means that you'll come back. <laughs> yes. Can you show up for another episode? Oh, I, was, I was hoping Cara could teach us about hormones at our age. Yeah. <laughs> well, our next guest actually is about parenting while in menopause, okay. parenting pubescent well, I kids. will be listening to that episode. <laughs> Thank you, Tina. You're Thank so you wonderful. And we're Thank so grateful you. for you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.